0: I ask you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we consider the passage for this morning. Okay, we're continuing in uh, Peter's sermon on Pentecost, which uh, begins in, in um, Acts 2.14. It goes down to Acts 2.41, um, but I'm just going to jump in at verse 22. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that your Holy Spirit is active and at work amongst your people. I pray that your Holy Spirit is active and at work amongst your elect, granting them repentance and faith and sealing them in new life with Christ. Holy Spirit, I'm confident that you are able through my weak words to grant life in the hearts of unbelievers. I pray that you do that this morning. I, I pray even as we consider the children. Lord, we love the children of this church so earnestly and we we, we desire so deeply for them to turn from their sin and to find saving faith in Christ. Help them, I pray. May, may something of these seeds that are sown this morning Come to germination through your work, Holy Spirit. Causing the roots to grow down deep in Christ. And Lord, if there are others gathered here this morning, here in the sound of, of my voice, if they are not yet regenerate, we pray that you would grant life, Holy Spirit. And we pray that in the hearts of your people, that you would cause us all to reflect and to worship you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have accomplished. Lord, for your crucifixion and for your resurrection and for your ascension. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in all that you've done for us and rejoice in this great salvation. Lord, where we still walk in unrepentant sin towards you, we pray that you would would prick our conscience through the power of your spirit and that you would grant us repentance even as we have already repented unto life, help us to repent of patterns of sin in our lives, that we might live for your glory, that you might be exalted in our midst. Again, we pray all of these things confident in the work of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of God and for the advance of your kingdom. For We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. In the late 18th century, a movement began in the United States that swept across the country for the next 50 years. Now, there are many leaders involved, but one man stands out. That man was Charles Finney, a hero to many. The movement was the, great, the second great awakening in which many thousands made decisions for Jesus Christ. One day, Finney, a Presbyterian lawyer, experienced what he referred to as a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love. He continues, it seemed like the very breath of God. I can recollect distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings. Finney soon began to conduct revival meetings in upstate New York, prep, uh, pro- popularizing what he referred to as new measures in the context of evangelism, especially something that's known as the anxious bench. This anxious bench was a precursor to what we know as the altar call. The anxious bench was a bench that was up at the front of the church where people who were affected by the sermon could come and, and sit and receive prayer for, commu- for conversion. Finney and others like him manipulated people's emotions so they would make a decision for Jesus. You see, Finney's conviction was that revival was not a miracle, but a purely philosophical use of the constituted means. He felt that revival was engineered. As he declared in his book It's recorded the lectures on revival. He said, first, we need good marketing. This is Finney's own words. First, we need good marketing. Second, we need protracted meetings. It's long meetings to maximize the psychological pressure on sinners to make decisions for Christ. Third, we should press the individual sinner and address him directly from the pulpit. He would call people out from the pulpit for their sins. Um, and, And he would invite them to a smaller decision, namely to come forward to the anxious bench and then continue to urge him there and to make his final decision for Christ. Finally, he said we should create an emotionally charged atmosphere. Again, in his words, he said the evangelist must produce excitements sufficient to induce sinners to repentance. That, my friends, is heresy. That's heresy. That's just the beginning of Finney's heresy. Finney was a five-point Arminian who believed in sinless perfectionism and denied justification by faith alone. And Finney has been set up as the the pattern for modern revivalism in North America and around the world. There there was a a shift from, from what was true revival to revivalism, and we see the continuation of that to this day wasn't just Finney. False doctrine and man-centered high-pressure tactics characterized the second great awakening and again have continued to do so. Conversion does not result from praying a prayer, simply praying a prayer, or or raising a hand, or, or walking down an aisle during a church service. Conversion comes from the regenerating work, nothing less than the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a sinner, enabling them to repent and to believe. So, then I think, as you can see, each word in the term second great awakening is a misnomer. The second great awakening is is not the second, nor was it great, nor was it an awakening. It's not the second, and that it had very little in common with the first, awake, first Great Awakening. In the First Great Awakening, there were many thousands of genuine conversions under men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield. And it all took place under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, many of us are familiar with Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which Edwards gravely warned his congregation. He said, what you have heard is the case of every one of you who are out of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There's a dreadful pit of glowing flames of the wrath of God. There's hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon nor nothing to take hold of. There's nothing between you and hell but the thin air. There's only the power and mere pleasure of God which holds you up. Now, many of us have have heard a retelling of that sermon or have have read that that sermon. But what is not commonly known is that when Jonathan Edwards first preached that sermon at his own church in Northampton, Massachusetts, he preached the, the sermon and there was no visible response. Nothing seemed to happen. But then some months later, when he preached the same sermon in Enfield, just a a short trip away on a Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday, July the 8th, 1741, as he preached that same sermon. People fell on the ground screaming, laying hold of the the pews as though the earth would open up underneath them and swallow them. He actually couldn't finish the sermon because the the sounds of of weeping and, and crying were so loud. How do you explain the difference? This is the same man preaching the same sermon in two different places, in two different times, with with two visibly, markedly different responses. How do you explain that? My friends, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. When Edwards preached that sermon the first time now, the Holy Spirit, we trust, was at work in, in the hearts of the people of the church and that, but in the second time, that there was a visible move of the spirit, so that that sinners were brought under conviction and granted repentance and faith. Now, there's, there's copious amounts have been written about about Jonathan Edwards and his his delivery of sermons. One commentator said that that he, he that Edwards preached as though there he, he was just speaking. To, to a the rope, a bell rope in the back of the congregation. Others said that that he he just he used a manuscript and would would rarely if ever engage in extemporaneous preaching. Friends, the the result does not come through the man. If it's through this man or any man, we are all doomed. But when God's word is opened up and proclaimed, we trust that God will work in the hearts of his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've heard often about Spurgeon and, and the, 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 the amazing response th- throughout England and, and much of the Western world through the ministry of Spurgeon. But as Spurgeon would, would climb the steps of the pulpit, he would stand every step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt that Spurgeon was a a skilled orator. There's very little that, that Spurgeon said that wasn't quotable. But the power did not come through Spurgeon. The power for conversion and for conviction came through the Holy Spirit. Same was true for George Whitefield. On Sunday, October the 12th, 1740, over 20,000 people gathered in, in Boston Common. This is like Boston Central Park to hear his farewell sermon. The, the crowd in the Boston Common was, was uh, of over 20,000 people was, was larger than the entire population of Boston at that time. So about 17,000 people living there, over 20,000 gathered. This was, to that point, very likely the the largest crowd that had ever gathered in America. Church historian Thomas Kidd explains that Whitfield simply implored the people to put their faith in Christ, the kind of sincere faith their Puritan forefathers embraced. It did not matter if their parents were Christians, it did not matter if they prayed, attended church, or read their Bibles. Whitfield wanted to know if they had experienced the new birth of conversion. A great many people openly wept as Whitfield preached. Only the Lord knows how many the Holy Spirit brought to a living faith that autumn Sunday evening. The question before you and me, as, as we sit here today, is have you experienced the new birth? Have you been regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you born again? This morning we are continuing our study of Peter's sermon on Pentecost. It was was really the first in a long line of biblical sermons stretching back from Pentecost to the first great awakening to our day. Every truly biblical sermon can be said to be in the line of this sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. This is the first evangelistic sermon in the New Testament. It really was the first the first sermon that was preached in the church ever, period. We saw last week how the the sign of the giving of the Holy Spirit was followed by the proclamation of Jesus Christ. We also saw last week that the proclamation was a sign. right? We we saw that Peter is answering the question that that was asked by the, the multitude of diaspora Jews who had gathered at the sound of the rushing wind when the Holy Spirit filled the gathered disciples and they, they praised God in various languages. Peter's answering the question, what does this mean? And so his marked change from, from the man who denied Christ three times to, to the man who was standing there in front of, of tens of thousands of people. It's estimated that, that if there was, there was 20,000, when Whitfield preached, there was over 40,000 gathered in front of Peter that day on Pentecost. Peter proclaimed before these gathered people that the end times have begun. He's saying that that what they had seen was a sign that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all kinds of people, enabling them to bear witness of Christ. The fact that Peter himself was standing there is a a testimony. It's a, a sign of the fact that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on him, enabling him to proclaim Christ. So then we saw last week what happens when the Holy Spirit works in a preacher. The Holy Spirit points preachers to the Word, that points people to Christ, and the power that God gives. This theme is is going to continue as, as Peter's sermon continues, but we'll also see what happens when the Holy Spirit works in the heart of a listener. I have four key points. Verses 22 to 23, the crucifixion of the Lord. Verses 24 to 32, the resurrection of the Lord. Verses 29 to 36, the ascension of the Lord. And then verses 37 to 41, salvation in the Lord. Peter's sermon obviously centers on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The proclamation of the the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord directs people to their need of salvation in the Lord. As Daryl Bach explains, this this speech is is one of the most important theological declarations in the New Testament. It highlights highlights who Jesus is and how one can know what God was doing through him. He says this is high Christology. Christology, right, the study of Christ. This This is Christology at its highest, showing that Jesus shares in God's presence and God's provision. The event is both a continuation of Israel's hope and the beginning of the realization of a promise that later in Acts leads leads to a new entity known as the church. So in this text, on the day of Pentecost, we see that the church is born. It's born through the proclamation of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and in the hearts of men and women. So verses 22 and 23, the crucifixion of the Lord. Peter begins, Men of Israel, hear these words. Again, the formerly timid Peter is commanding the the gathered crowd to pay attention. What he's about to say are the most important words that they have ever heard. And you had better pay attention as well. Because these are some of the most important words that you have ever heard. Jesus of Nazareth, Arguably, no more important words in all of Scripture. Ever, all of Scripture is, is important. All of Scripture is vitally important. But this is up there with, with Romans 3 and, and, and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 6 and, and, and Isaiah 53. These, these glorious passages that, that highlight the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an undeniable fact. But again, the question for you is, are you a beneficiary of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension? It happened. But did it happen for you? Are you now living under the benefits of what Christ has accomplished? and is accomplishing and will accomplish? Have you put your faith in the crucified and risen and ascended Savior? Is Jesus Christ your crucified and risen and ascended Savior? Is he your crucified and risen and ascended Lord? That, my friends, is the question that was before those who heard Peter's sermon 2,000 years ago. It's the question that is before you today. Today, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Let's unpack this. Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem, but raised in the Galilean town of Nazareth, about 150 kilometers from Jerusalem. He was a man, but by God's attestation, he was no mere man. The Father Himself had provided the evidence of this by accomplishing mighty works and wonders and signs through Jesus Christ in their very midst. They all knew what Jesus had done. Through God, as, as Jesus Himself had had testified to the disciples of John the Baptist in Luke 7, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, The poor and the poor have the good news preached to them. This is what Jesus was anointed to do. And these things weren't done in a corner, but they were done before the eyes of, of all the people in the nation. Later, the Jewish teaching, even in the Babylonian Talmud, acknowledged that Jesus did amazing things, but they attributed his work to sorcery. And those who witnessed his miracles handed him over to be crucified on the eve of Passover, as the Talmud also records. This was according to God's sovereign plan. Verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Throughout Luke and Acts, it is abundantly clear that God knew that Jesus would suffer. Let's just look at a couple of passages. Luke 9, The Son of Man must suffer many things and on the third day be raised. And verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. Jesus, sorry, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This, this all took place just prior to Jesus beginning his journey to Jerusalem, about a year before his crucifixion. Clearly, Jesus knew full well what he was going to do. Clearly, God knew full well what he was going to do. But God didn't just know what was going to happen. God planned what was going to happen. Jesus would suffer. Jesus must suffer. Luke 18, 31 to 33. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. I hope you get the picture. God's foreknowledge doesn't just mean that God knows what will happen in the future. God's foreknowledge means that he is predetermining what is going to happen in the future. With God, foreknowledge is ordination. Can just, just think for a moment about the, the number of, of events that had to come together at that particular moment for Jesus to be crucified. Even, even the Roman occupation of Israel. Even the, the, the census from Caesar that, that Jesus that Mary and Joseph would travel back to Bethlehem. The fact that, that that Herod would would try to kill him, that they would flee into Egypt and that after the death of Herod, he would come back. And all of the events surrounding Jesus' ministry and the the call of the apostles and the ministry that that they performed, it was all under the plan and the purpose and the foreknowledge, the foreordination of God. And it was all leading to the point of his crucifixion. Jesus Came into the world to die. And after that, to be raised and ascended. And as we still await his return, all of history is his story. Again, Jesus came to suffer and die. His suffering and death was, was central to the, the covenant of redemption that was made in eternity past according to God's definite plan of foreknowledge. In the the covenant of redemption, God the Father and God the Son entered into a sacred agreement together. The Son agreed to submit to the covenant stipulations and to fulfill everything that was necessary to accomplish the redemption of the elect. And the Father agreed to vindicate the Son and reward Him by giving Him the Holy Spirit, by enabling Him to send out the Holy Spirit upon the church, by giving Him the bride, the church, the people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and to commit all power in heaven and earth unto him. In other words, the, the covenant, according to the covenant of redemption, God the Son agreed to take on human flesh, to come into the world, to live his life in full obedience to God's covenant, to love God, and to obey him perfectly, and then to die on the cross as a covenant breaker, bearing the wrath of God for guilty sinners. God the Father agreed to reward the Son by giving Him the church, the people for whom He died, to raise Him from the grave, to to bring Him up, to ascend Him to heaven, and to give Him authority to bestow the Holy Spirit upon the church, and to give Him authority over all things. This was God's plan. Before there was time, this was God's plan. So the suffering and the death of of Jesus was God's sovereign plan, before time. But, Peter continues in verse 23, but you, Jews, crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. So then God delivered Jesus into the hands of the Jews who delivered Jesus into the hands of the Romans, crucified, and that, that term their lawless men, refers to, to those who are without the Mosaic law. Israel delivered Jesus into the hands of the Romans who crucified him. The Romans crucified Jesus again. It was, it was because the Jews had handed them over to him. It wasn't Pilate didn't want to do it. He still did it. The Jewish leadership and the angry mob who shouted out to Pilate, "Crucify him," were personally responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. How do we put that together? God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The, the scripture teaches both, so we embrace both. We believe both. To us, it's a paradox. How can God be responsible and man be, or sorry, God be sovereign and man be responsible at the same time? This is This is one of the greatest mysteries in creation. God did not force the Jews to act. They chose to do what was in their own wicked hearts. However, again, it was God's plan from eternity past. Everything about it was under God's sovereign control and yet he was not the author of sin. So that's the crucifixion of the Lord. Now with verses 24 to 32, we see the resurrection of the Lord. The death of Jesus wasn't the end of the story. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised Jesus from the dead to show that he was satisfied that Christ had paid for our sins and to vindicate Christ, declaring that he was, in fact, innocent, righteous. God loosed the pangs of death. The the word that is used here is used to describe the, the birth pangs of a woman in labor. Now, I've never, thankfully, never experienced it, but I've seen it Four times I've seen it. It's very powerful. I say that as a mere observer. Ladies, many of you know what I'm speaking of. Frederick Field in the the Greek lexicon of the New Testament says this is a remarkable mixed metaphor in which death is regarded as being in labor and unable to hold back its child, the Messiah. Think about the picture here. It was not possible for death to hold him because he was perfectly righteous. Because he is God the Son incarnate. Peter is saying that if, if a mother in labor could not hold on to a child as about, who was about to be born, how much less could death hold on to Christ? Psalm 116, verses 3 to 5 reads, The, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold upon me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called in the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Now Psalm 116 has been my favorite Psalm ever since a few days after I came to faith in Christ because it gives voice to what I experienced in my own conversion. But it means infinitely more when you consider the fact that Jesus Christ experienced this. It is in Christ that the application comes to you and to me. The snares of of death came upon Jesus Christ. The pangs of death were upon Him. He suffered distress and anguish for our sins. And then God delivered Him. And so the application is that God will deliver us in Him. Peter continues in Acts 22, 25 to 28, quoting Psalm 16, 8 to 11. Let's, let's just turn there together, please, to Psalm 16. Note first the superscript. What, what Seth read for us earlier, a, a miktam of David. The, the superscript there in your Bible, in, in all caps, is, is um, it's inspired. It's part of the, the original manuscripts. A miktam is is very probably a liturgical or a musical term, but but scriptures are saying that this was written by David. This is a psalm of David. I'll read the psalm. I'll read verses eight to eleven. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Down in verses 29 to 32, Peter expounds on the psalm, explaining it and applying it. This psalm, he says, could not ultimately be about David because David died and was buried. His tomb was right there in Jerusalem. In Psalm 16, David is excri- is describing what he experienced. But ultimately, Psalm 16 is not about David. It's about Christ. Now listen carefully. This is, this is an important hermeneutical principle. When you, when you look at the Psalms or really any part of Scripture, you, you need to con- consider it in its original context. You need to understand what the original Holy Spirit-inspired human author meant and that was meant to be understood by the, the first hearers or readers, or in this case, singers. And once, once you have done that, consider once you've considered the Psalms in the original context, you, you can then begin to, uh, to understand their ultimate but not different meaning in the New Testament. And it's only then that you can legitimately understand and apply these principles. So then David, as a picture of Christ, experienced this in part, but Christ experienced it in the fullness. Jesus Christ fulfilled Psalm 16. David wrote this, Peter tells us, as a prophet for telling that what Jesus would experience and accomplish. He says in 1 Peter 1, 10-12, Without fully understanding, David foresaw the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, as, as, as Peter preaches this on the day of Pentecost, we need to understand, friends, that, that, that Christ is not Jesus' surname. Right? Jesus Christ isn't his last name, Christ is his title. Christos in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, means the anointed one, the one who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The, 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 it actually should be probably the Christ, the Messiah, is who Jesus is. Yet he's the anointed one. He's the one who is, as he testified in Luke 4, 18 and 19, quoting the servant songs in Isaiah, is the, is the one who was anointed by the Spirit to proclaim the gospel. The one who is anointed to be the gospel. And so even as, as David had a glimpse of these things, he's speaking of Jesus, who even in the depths of his suffering, even in his death, never lost sight of God or what God had sent him to do. Even in his death, he lived in hope that God would not abandon his soul to Hades, which is the place of the dead. Now, when the Jews to this point considered resurrection, they really only considered the the resurrection, the general resurrection that would take place at the end of history. But what Jesus was doing here was showing them something new. He was resurrected three days later. After three days and three nights, Christ was resurrected from the dead. And what appeared to be victory for Satan and his allies was actually their defeat. They killed Jesus but God raised him up. Verse 32, Peter says again, this Jesus God raised up. And he declares himself and, and those who were with him as witnesses. Peter and the, the other disciples the, the, and the, all of the 120 witnesses who had experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians fifteen six, we read that there were more than 500 eyewitnesses. Some tried to deny the resurrection of Christ, but then, foolishly and ironically, accept other events in history with far, far less evidence. It is hard-heartedness and spiritual blindness to deny the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is an irrefutable fact. There is far greater evidence for the resurrection than if there were five billion eyewitnesses because we have the testimony of the irrefutable word of god first timothy 3:16 3, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Romans 1, 3, and 4. Jesus Christ, God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. God was satisfied with the death that Christ had paid for our sins. And so his resurrection was his vindication, and his resurrection is our justification. The psalm ends on a note of of triumph and rejoicing, because Christ could be confident and joyful in God's presence. We also who are in Christ can be confident and joyful in Christ's presence. Brothers and sisters, we dwell quorum Deo. We dwell before the face of God. This is a comfort. That at this very moment, you and I are dwelling before the face of God. God is is not just passively, but actively gazing upon us. this very moment. You're standing on holy ground. You're always standing on holy ground when you live Coram Deo. As Arcee Sproul says, that, that this is, this is a, he says this is a call to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God to the glory of God. Are you conscious? Are you daily conscious of the fact that you dwell? Quorum Deo. Something that I pray regularly for, that will grow in the, the, the knowledge that I dwell before the face of God. Is that your prayer? Pray that for you? That all of us would consciously know that we dwell before the face of God. What difference would it make in your life? if you knew that you dwelled dwelled in the presence of God. The bitter heart, God is there. The wasted time, God is there. The angry reaction, God is there. Lustful thoughts, God is there. But brothers and sisters, God is not there. To condemn you, He is there as your source and as your strength to overcome. He is there as your forgiving Heavenly Father. As the one who loves you with the very same love that He has for His Son, He is raised. Jesus Christ from the dead, and he will raise you from the depths of your sin as well. And one day, upon his return, or if the Lord calls you sooner, you will go to be with him forever. So it's a call. Corum Deo is a call, but it's also a comfort for the believer. But Christ's ministry does not end with the resurrection. It continues with his ascension, verses thirty-three to thirty-six, the ascension of the Lord. In Acts chapter one, verses four to eleven, we discuss the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ to the Father's right hand, and I, I explained that that we tend to overlook the ascension, but it is vitally important. The ascension is vitally important; is it a, is it a vitally important aspect of Christology because, as I said earlier, it, it reveals who. Christ is God the Son incarnate. He is, and he is still incarnate. One day he will return bodily just as he departed. Come Lord Jesus. The, the ascension has, has present and future implications for our current situations as we live in the time between the, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the promise of his return. In fact, our salvation depends On the ascension, every bit as much as it depends upon the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. If there is no ascension, there is no salvation. Now I would encourage you to do more study on the ascension and maybe to go back and to listen to those messages again from the beginning of Acts. Again, in the ascension we see who Jesus really is. Christ's ascension is his exaltation. It's his enthronement. As we discussed earlier, he received the Holy Spirit as a reward for his fulfillment of the covenant of redemption. And from this exalted position, he's given the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit upon the church. Acts 2.33 Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Pentecost is the beginning of the fulfillment of that, and the fulfillment continues as to this day as as every born-again believer in Jesus Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit upon conversion. That gift comes through the exalted Christ. As the Nicene Creed Creed says, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. The biblical testimony, this is clear. John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. In his messianic authority, from his exalted seat at the right hand of God, Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit on the gathered disciples. Psalm sixty-eight eighteen declares, "You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and re- and receiving gifts among men." We spoke about this from Ephesians four eight some months ago. We began our study of the spiritual gifts. Christ gave gifts to the church for the ministry of the church. Christ gave each one of us gifts to fulfill the ministry of the church. And what Peter is saying here is that those who are are gathered are witnessing Christ's messianic authority and His ascension is what has enabled Pentecost to take place. That with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is working, building His church, again, through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has filled the disciples and enabled them to bear witness of Christ in the languages of those gathered around. And now has enabled Peter, speaking in Aramaic or or Greek, to preach this sermon. And now, 2,000 years later, the same Holy Spirit is enabling me to preach this sermon. And again, as evidence, David turns to the Psalms explain what's taking place. He's this time quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. Again, let's turn there. Psalm 110. Again, notice the superscript. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In this Psalm, David speaks of God's king ruling in the midst of his enemies and finally conquering them. Now, David's kingship, and this is initially about David, David's, David's kingship is obvious. But David is also a priest unto God. David experienced these things in part. David was, in a sense, a, a priest's king, not in the line of Aaron, but in the line of Melchizedek. Because he's now ruling over Jerusalem, the city in which he once ruled. In 1 Chronicles, we we see David with a linen robe being numbered among the priests, or rather among the Levites carrying the ark. And also in 1 Chronicles, we see David in a a linen ephod. This is priestly garb. So David was a priest and king, but only a part. David is no longer a priest and king, but Jesus still is. Jesus still is a priest and a king. And so Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. He is the one who will fully and finally defeat all of his enemies. And the last enemy that is to be destroyed is death, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Christ defeated death when he rose from the grave. He is the first fruits of From the grave, he will defeat death for us as well. Now, Jesus had referred earlier to Psalm 110, verse verse 1, and and Luke uh, 20, verses 42 and 23, to demonstrate that the Messiah, though David's offspring according to flesh, is also David's Lord. And here, Peter's reminding us that the ascension proves, again, who Jesus is as a priest king the eternal priest king. As Edmund Clowney reminds us, the Lord Jesus does not begin with his resurrection, sorry, the Lordship of of Jesus does not begin with his resurrection glory and ascended rule. The divine Lordship is his eternally. He shares glory and authority with God because he is God. So David closes his sermon with the words, "Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Now, some people would take this to, to mean that that, this, that Jesus again began at this point to be both Lord and Christ. But as Clanny has said, this is something Jesus is eternally. He be, he became the Christ through the through the incarnation and and the accomplishment fulfillment of the covenant of redemption. Friends, this is not adoptionism. In this sense, Jesus Christ has, has always been who he is. But in the incarnation, he, he took on human flesh and accomplished what he was sent to do. So the ascension is the vindication of who he really is and the fact that he has fulfilled his messianic mission. Now Luke refers regularly to Jesus Christ as the Lord throughout Luke and Acts. Just in Acts, he uses the word Lord to refer to to Jesus Christ at least 47 times. Ben Witherington points out that this this term in Greek, kurios, is the most frequently used Christological title, title in all of Luke Acts. It's used almost twice as frequently as the term Christ. So he explains that this term this term refers to, to one who exercised dominion over the world and in particular over human lives and events. Friends, Jesus Christ is the Lord. But again, the question comes, is He your Lord? Is He the Lord over your life? Is, is, is all of your life under His sovereign rule? Are you consciously bowing the knee to Him and and forsaking your will in preference for His will. That's what it means that He's your Lord. You're bowing the knee to Him in all things. Friends, if He's not your Lord, He is not your Savior. Finally, verses 37 to 41. Salvation in the Lord. We've heard what the Holy Spirit does in the preacher, enabling Him to bear witness Christ and his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Well, now let's hear what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of elect listeners. Verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? They were cut to the heart. Jesus had been pierced to the heart because of their sin and now they saw their guilt and were themselves pierced to the heart. You can't manufacture this. You can't manipulate somebody into this. They now recognized that they were responsible for the death of Jesus and they came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Have you recognized that you are responsible for the death of Jesus? For Acts Acts 2.22 and, and 23, we can, we can say that, that, yes, the Lord handed him over, and, and yes, that the Jews handed Jesus over to the Romans, and yes, the Romans crucified Jesus. But friends, you crucified Jesus. I crucified Jesus. It was your sin and my sin that necessitated his death on the cross. You and I are guilty for the death of Jesus. And the only response is, brothers, what should we do when you realize what you've done when you realize your guilt before the Holy God, and, and not just for individual sins here and there, but for a whole life of sin that's caused Jesus to be crucified, when you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and your guilt becomes clear to you, you're broken before the Holy God. You cry to Him for mercy. Derek Thomas says that through his judgment, his enemies would be subdued before him. Referring here to Psalm sixteen hundred and ten, their wicked hearts were conquered by Christ. Christ defeated his enemies in this sense by dying for them and making them his friends. The Holy Spirit, as, John, as Jesus said in John 16, 8, when he, he comes, he will convict the world regarding sin and judgment. And, and again, they now realize that they had killed their own Messiah. They've been granted repentance and faith. Again, they asked Peter and the rest of the, of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And so Peter told them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The answer is repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Again, so so this is something they needed to do. But in reality, for your salvation, the only thing that you can do is repent and believe Christ, which again is the work of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is a a gift of the Holy Spirit. and Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is is not just a a guilty conscience or a change of mind. It's It's a change of heart. Wrought by the Holy Spirit that leads to a change in behavior. Also wrought by the Holy Spirit. But there you also work as one who has had your heart changed. Your behavior begins to change. This is a different relationship with God that leads to a different relationship with sin. And you will not repent until you understand the holiness of God and the fact that sin, that your sin, necessitated the death of Jesus Christ in your place. When I began to be under conviction for my sin I, I was initially aware that I affected many people with my sin I began aware of the fact that there was not one person in my life that I had not harmed by being a selfish sinner But I quickly began to be aware of the fact that I offended God with my sin And with this came the first stirrings of repentance Again, repentance is the gift of God, but we are are still responsible to bear fruit in keeping with repentance by the power of the Spirit. Repentance is not always, as Calvin says, repentance is not always follows faith, but is produced by faith. Repentance and faith bear fruit. Repentance and faith bear fruit. And so this, this command to be baptized is a fruit of repentance. Essentially, it means that that baptism was an expression of faith and, and a commitment to the to Jesus Christ as Lord. Again, this, this harks back to Luke chapter three, with the the command of John the Baptist to to, to the, the repentant people to repent and be baptized. However, the the baptism of Jesus Christ is a distinctly different baptism from that of of John the Baptist. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, now some, like in the, the, Church of, uh, the Church of God and the Church of Christ, they, they use, and I use this in the sense of the denominations, they, they use these as proof texts for baptismal regeneration that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. My friends, that is clearly not true baptismal regeneration is, is works-based salvation. Every bunch as is, is, is circumcision was a form of works-based, or viewed as a work as a works-based salvation for the Judaizers. You say, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. But again, faith works. Faith produces fruit. Repentance produces fruit. Now, it's, it's, I'm, I'm excited we have we just had three baptisms, and we have we have, I trust three more baptisms coming up before long. There's there's three women that, that Jane is is walking through about the work of of, of uh, baptism material with, with a view to in the near future them being baptized in the, in the church, and we're we're so excited for this. I think it would would be helpful here to to, and this is a plug as well for um, this is the the to point you to the Baptist Catechism, in order to help you understand. Here, what baptism is? This is, in God's providence, this is the question that our family is working through this week. Baptist Catechism question 97. What is baptism? Answer, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized as a sign of fellowship with him in his death, burial, and resurrection of his being engrafted into him of remission of sins and of his giving up himself Unto God, through Jesus Christ, to live and to walk in newness of life. So baptism is a sign, it's a a picture. That you are are united with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. When you go onto the water, it's a picture of dying. You come out of the water, it's it's a picture of being raised with Christ. Peter continues, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter here urged his hearers that they would find that the promise of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit was the truth. Because God had made this promise to them and to their descendants. And this this reference here to those who are far off, likely within the context of, of preaching the sermon to diaspora Jews who were from far off lands likely refers to those that the, they were, they were the, the Jews who were far off. Remember that the, the gospel is, is to be proclaimed, the witness of Christ is proclaimed in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the earth. Now last week when we were looking at, at Peter's quotation of, of Joel chapter 2 in the first half of the sermon, he, he stopped at Joel 231, 2.31a. Now he, he references the, the final point from Joel 232b. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The focus here is on the priority of God's of God's gracious call. The ones who are saved are those whom God has called to himself with his effectual call. with God's call comes God's power to respond to the call, the gift of repentance and faith. And verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Clearly, Luke is, is just giving a, a synopsis of Peter's sermon on Pentecost, a summary of He's reminding the people again to, to save themselves from this crooked generation to be separate. There was, again, there was estimated that over 40,000 people were gathered to say, save yourself, separate yourself unto Christ from those who you are surrounded with. And so, verse 41, those who received the word were baptized, Were there added that day about 3,000 souls. They received Peter's word. They 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 heard it, and they believed it, and they responded to it with faith and repentance, and they were added to the church. 3,000 people. So they started at the beginning of, the, of Ch- Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. On the morning of Pentecost, there were 120 people in the church. And now by the end of the day, there were around 3,120 People in the church. These are part of the the greater works that Jesus said the disciples would perform in John 14, 12. The church is born. And because many of these men and women were diaspora Jews from the surrounding nations, many of them would have gone out from there back to their homeland and and churches would have sprung up all over the region. So not just one church, but, but the universal church was born on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom of God on that day. This is not in the work of Peter. This is, this is not through his winsomeness or his eloquence. Or is anything. This is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his heart and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his hearers. Earlier, I spoke of, of Charles Finney. And it's, it's a, a little known fact that, that towards his death, towards the time of his death, he seems to have actually repented, at least of, of some uh, of, of the way that he had used man means in order to, to cause people to make decisions from, for Christ. This is a, a quote from, from Finney. I've thought that, at least in a great many instances, stress enough has not been laid upon the necessity of divine influence upon the hearts of Christians and of sinners. I am confident that I have sometimes erred in this respect myself in order to rout sinners and backsliders from their self-justifying pleas and refuges I have laid and I, no doubt, and I doubt not that others have also laid too much stress upon the natural ability of sinners to the neglect of showing them the nature and extent of their dependence upon the grace of God and the influence of the Holy Spirit. He says this has grieved the Holy Spirit of God. Now does he go far enough there? I don't think so but it's very possible that that he repented and acknowledged the truth of the gospel of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in regenerating hearts. As for Charles Finney's spiritual state, I really can't say. The Lord knows. But what is your spiritual state? Are you one who is truly born again are you one who is truly born again and as life that is in your life you are bearing fruit the fruit of repentance the fruit of faith is your life markedly different because of the work of the holy spirit in your heart and as somebody who is born again as somebody who has been given the holy spirit are you praying for the advance of the gospel? Are you praying for, for more biblical preaching? Are you praying for revival? Are you praying confident in the fact that, you know, we look around at this country and, and we it, it grieves me deeply to see the way that this country has changed even in the last five years. And I'm tempted to get riled up in my flesh to, to call people to command people to stop Stop living for immorality. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. Well, who's that? Who am I? Who are you? To try to force people by an act of your will to make changes in the culture. Friends, we must cry out to the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit to bring revival, and for revival to start in the church, for revival even to start in this church, that we would be broken for our sins, that we would experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that through the the, the, the change that the Holy Spirit wreaks in our lives, that we would live lives that are different, and that we, by the the proclamation of the word, that that the. the through the Holy Spirit in us that others also will come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You and I can't do it. We can't do it in ourselves. We can't do it in anybody. We need to depend on the Holy Spirit to make the change that God requires of us. The change that first takes place at conversion and then continues and then continues to bear fruit in the life Of a true believer. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for your goodness and your mercy that you have extended upon us in Jesus Christ. We praise you that you have caused us through the power of your Holy Spirit to to experience conviction of our sins, to see our guilt before you. To see that we are, are laid open and that we have no place to hide from You except to hide in the blood of Christ. That You have done these things, You have quickened our hearts through the power of Your Holy Spirit. You have made us alive through the power of Your Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. And that through Your Holy Spirit You are continuing to shape us and to mold us and to transform us into the image of Christ. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, do that work that you have begun. We have been sealed by you. We know that through your work, we will never fall away because you are the sovereign God. Help us, I pray, to continue and to grow and to bear fruit for the glory of God. For We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.